0: Welcome to another podcast episode hosted by Penn State's Aiki. Today, we're going to talk about a topic where I'm sure all of you guys will have questions about down the road in the future. So today, I we are joined by two alumni who are either long-time retired or just recently retired. And so before we begin, I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves.
1: Well, my name is Ken Grattani. I graduated with my BS in chemical engineering in 1970. Uh, asking my favorite memory of Penn State is difficult because nobody has one favorite memory of Penn State. I can talk about summer semester taking computer courses where I had the whole campus to myself or also staying in the, going to football games when they had the two undefeated back-to-back seasons, 68 and 69. So, and then my son was born in Belfont. He was born when I was at Penn State. So those are my three faves.
0: Those are some great memories. How about you, John?
2: Uh, I graduated in 1978 uh, with V.S. E. my favorite center at the arena with my wife. She was my girlfriend then. Um, Massive snowball fights uh, raging across campus from one dorm section to another and uh, uh, winning the I.M. uh, title, dorm house title. Um, I guess those are...
1: It's funny, I didn't mention anything about chemical engineering. (laughs) We didn't say anything about chemical engineering, but that was was a given that we enjoyed that. Yeah.
0: Thank you guys for sharing some of your favorite memories at Penn State. And so now that you guys are in retirement, what do you guys enjoy the most about retirement? And do you ever miss going back to work? John?
2: So I've been retired two years. I don't miss work as much as I thought I would. I'm a little surprised by that. I, I find I sleep better. That's a good thing, um, you know. Like I don't. Uh, it's just healthier, you know. I, I'm sleeping seven hours straight, you know, kind of thing. Um, I don't miss the stress. Uh, I didn't know it, you know, but I realize now there was a fair amount of stress. I. I You know, this year with the COVID uh, issues, it hasn't been as good as the first year of retirement when we were traveling half the time. So that's been, that was very nice. See a lot of family and friends and go places we hadn't gone before.
0: You mentioned that you spent quite some time traveling. So what is your top place to visit?
2: Malaysia. We lived there twice. Um, People there are extremely friendly um and we like to go back i started uh i started up an engineering center there and we hired a lot of very young people and uh, you know i'm still in touch with them uh even though they're now scattered all around the world um they've gone on assignment you know all over the place um but that office has grown now to more than 300 people so whenever i go back i'm still welcome Mm-hmm. Um, so it's nice.
0: That's awesome. How about you, Ken? What do you enjoy the most about retirement?
1: I'd have to say what I enjoy the most about retirement is just the freedom. The freedom to do you know, what I want to yeah. do. I mean, uh, y- your other question was, do I ever miss going back to work? And the answer to that is, a, is an emphatic no. But that's because it isn't like I stopped working. I'm just not doing things that I want to do my own freedom. Like, like volunteering at Penn State or mm-hmm. consulted for a while. But that was all my own decision. I, I decided to do that stuff. And the things like traveling, like John mentioned, uh, you know, getting to do some exotic traveling and not having to worry about, you know, all the work piling up back on my desk in the office, you know, I don't have to worry about that anymore, okay? I can just go and enjoy it, you know, go go up to Hudson's Bay and see the Northern Lights and spend, you know, a week up there and things like that. And you asked John what was the most, uh, the place he liked to visit the most, I'd have to say for me, just before COVID hit January of 2020, we took an Australia, New Zealand trip. And I would say we were planning to go back to New Zealand and then COVID mm -hmm. delayed that for quite a while. So, uh, but New Zealand is is beautiful. Is that gonna
0: be the first place you go back to when COVID dies down and travel restrictions um, ease out a little bit?
1: Well, it'll be the third place. We have two trips already planned and in, in queue that we have to that we're gonna go on, assuming COVID gets cleared up. But Okay. One of them is uh, we're going to Italy and then we're going to Finland to see the northern lakes again. That's awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I'm jealous. You <laughs> can, can do that in retirement. So
2: So just just to be clear though, Ken and I Worked for the same company and we worked together uh, for, I don't know, 10 years or so. Yeah. And we enjoyed it. I mean, you know, you, you ask us whether we miss it, but, you know, it's not like we were chained to a desk and, and hated every minute of it. We loved it.
1: Yeah. And the one thing I did uh, in my, I've been retired, I forgot to mention, I've been retired. I retired in 2009. So I've been retired about 11 years <clears throat> for maybe the first five or six of those years. I actually consulted back with ExxonMobil. So I kind of weaned myself off of work. I was doing some consulting work while I was retired. I didn't have to take the jobs. you know. I took them because I wanted to. So uh, it wasn't like a hard stop. It was sort of like a nice slow slide into mm-hmm. retirement. So.
0: I heard that that's more common these days. But now that you guys have mentioned um, work a little bit more, can you guys walk us through your journey of since graduation, what type of jobs and what type of roles have you guys had up until retirement? Um, Ken?
1: OK. Uh, <clears throat> well, when I, I graduated from Penn State and with a BS in 1970, chemical engineering, I then went to grad school. I went to University of Illinois, and I got I got my master's there and then stayed on and got my phd so that that took me up to like the beginning of 1975 and then i i took a job with mobile research and development corporation and i pretty much worked for them for 25 years in different capacities you know moving around different career experiences And then we had the merger with Exxon in 1990. And at that point, I transitioned over to quote the new company, Exxon Mobil, and worked with them for another 10 years until I then retired in 2009. So pretty much I worked for one company the whole whole time. I mean, if you ignoring the merger that combined two companies there, it was, so.
2: You you haven't said much about
1: You haven't, you haven't said very much about what you did. I mean, you want us to talk about- He's a legend. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I pretty much worked in, in uh, refinery technology development, uh, doing things like complex process modeling, you know, what not A goes to B goes to C, but uh, you know, 50 different components reacting simultaneously. In a commercial, and now they're up to 3,000. They've exceeded whatever I've done. Uh, I worked in different process technologies, all different kinds of reaction kind of systems. My my expertise was reaction engineering, so designing reactors of all different kinds. And uh, so I worked in all different aspects of a refinery. And I dabbled a little bit in the business side and realized quickly that, well, that was okay and I could do that my heart was back in a research department, a technical Mm -hmm. department, engineering kind of work.
0: That's awesome. You mentioned uh, your expertise as in reaction engineering. That's honestly one of my favorite classes so far here. So,
1: Follow your heart. (laughs) Yeah.
0: How about you, John?
2: Um, Well, I worked for ExxonMobil for 40 years. Um, I started in a refinery in New Jersey and worked in the Houston headquarters at the time and then Baton Rouge Refinery. And then I went back to the one in New Jersey. Uh, and I was moving up from engineer to supervisor to manager along the way. Um, and that took me to about 15 years altogether. And then I went to the international company uh, headquarters for five years. That was doing planning. Uh, then we went overseas for six years: two years in Malaysia, four years in Singapore, um, and then I uh, went back to planning. That at that point the merger happened, um, and I went back to the former mobile headquarters in Virginia, and I met Ken. Uh, then, actually, we met we met much earlier than that. We were. Uh, recruiting team captains against each other we were enemies yeah mobile and exxon um but yeah so we met um the head of the department larry duda introduced us he said you guys are always up here you need to meet each other (laughs) um so anyway i was in uh i was in the research and engineering company when i went to virginia and i did something called research guidance i was basically economics for uh, research projects, try to figure out how to succeed more um, and when to stop things and so on. Um, And I went back over to Malaysia to start up the uh, engineering center I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And then I went back to uh, planning for um, the downstream business, refining, marketing, pipelines, et cetera. I did that. Though for another seven years, something like that, um, working on large projects, you know, billions of dollars. So that was fun. Pretty much everything I did, I I enjoyed. There there were one or two jobs I didn't really like out of like maybe 15 that I had. Um, But most of them I enjoyed thoroughly. And Pretty much everything I worked on in the last 20 years, I not only enjoyed, but I was either on or leading what I considered to be a high-performing team. So I felt really lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah.
0: That's pretty rare, I think, nowadays to be in be in several different positions where you like pretty much all of them. But now that you guys um, have elaborated a little bit of what you guys have done throughout your careers, what did you think, your career would look like when it first started, and comment on how does that compare to how it turned out, John.
2: Yeah, I wanted to be CEO, um, <laughs> so that didn't happen. Uh, I did okay, um, you know, it was lower part of the middle level of management, I guess, maybe a little better than that. Um, but I had um, two CEOs work for me. And uh, another six people who made it to the vice president level, which is a very big job in ExxonMobil. They don't give out those titles very easily. Um, there's, only, there's probably only 30 VPs in the core. Um, so, uh, and a bunch of refinery managers. I think a dozen refinery managers worked for me. Um, and I get a lot of satisfaction out of having helped them. Mm -hmm. um yeah so i don't know no my career did not look like what i thought it would um but i wouldn't trade it i mean i got to take the best thing was i took my kids overseas when they were 10 and 12 and it changed their lives i mean they're they're very different people than they would have been if they stayed in the u.s
0: that's an awesome story. I think it's better that you had a better that you didn't become a CEO and had CEOs work for you. All the yeah. heard
1: that. I could just imagine me working for Hollenbeck as a CEO. Well, wow. that would have been, been. Yeah, super. well, that's probably why I'm not. now John and I work work very well together. That's why we're a good we mentor team for Chemie 470. Mm-hmm.
0: How about you, Ken? How did you think your career would
1: turn out? Well, actually, like I said, I, I went to University of Illinois, got my mm-hmm. PhD. And so, my vision, no, it, my career did not turn out the way I had thought when I was graduating and just starting. I uh, just graduated with a PhD. I wanted to do technology, be a scientist, do fundamental research, you know, and all that good technical stuff. I never anticipated nor did I desire to become like a manager or anything like that. And, and I held various levels of management positions all the way up until I retired. And I think this is a good lesson for, for the students in that you may have a vision of what your career is, but as you keep moving forward, you learn different things. And, and what I learned was, well, it was fun to work on the science stuff, it was almost more fun to decide what side stuff you wanted to do and direct that. Mm-hmm. And the other, you know, you were still, I was still involved in technology, but now I was making decisions on what technology should be developed and helping develop that. So it was even a broader, a broader kind of responsibility that I could could not even envision when I started with the company. Mm-hmm. And, and I think students need to understand that, that you may have a vision of where you want to go, but you're going to learn more as you move forward. And your vision of where you want to go will change based on that new knowledge. As long as you keep moving with your heart, things you love to do or want to do, uh, you'll, you'll have a happy career. So. Right.
0: So um, earlier you mentioned that you wanted to work on like some of the technical sides, technical skills. So how much school or technical knowledge did you have to know um, when you first like graduated or even throughout your career, Ken?
1: Uh, well, I, I always throw this number out to the students. and Maybe you've heard this already, Annie, that your undergraduate career will educate you. It forms a great base of knowledge but it's only about ten percent of what you really need to know to be a successful. And you're going to continue to learn throughout your whole career. Okay, so uh, how much of your how much of your school and, and knowledge do you need? Well, I kind of think you need all of it, and not just the fundamental scientific and engineering aspects, but a lot of the soft skills that you're learning, to you know leadership how to work with people, how to work with teams, you know, communication skills, written skills. You need all that. And those those skills are gonna grow as you grow your career too, Mm -hmm. so.
0: So mentioning all these soft skills, which comes to my next question is, what do you think would be your top like three skills that you see transferred between all the different jobs and positions that you have
1: had? Well, I moved around to different positions in, in the research department. So there's a lot of fundamental chemical engineering that doesn't, that's basic if I'm working on one refinery process or another refinery process. Mm-hmm. Those transfers. But the, ones, the skills that I think are universal were the problem-solving skills that I learned as an engineer. Because no matter what job I held, whether it was in the business, you know, my business experience or my technical experience, or even my management leadership experience, I was solving problems. And so problem solving skills and creative thinking, you know, decision analysis and all those kind of things are very critical. Wow, plug for decision analysis. I didn't (laughs) I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it your way, John, but I, know, <laughs> you know, decision-making. Yeah.
0: All right, John, how about you? How much school or technical knowledge did you think transferred into all of your different positions that you have held?
2: I would say, frankly, zero or close, um, but uh, because I didn't, unlike Ken, I did not do uh, technical work, really. I mean, after um you know, I had two engineering jobs in the first uh, two years mm-hmm. and I used some of those some of the things I learned in school but I worked for a big company. They had their own way of doing things you know um, and after that you know I, I didn't really do technical work um, so yeah I, w- I would say not much but I agree with Ken problem solving um, also having to get a lot of homework done, you know, you either get it done or you don't. Um and so focusing on delivering, you know, meeting deadlines and and you know delivering a good result, that was something I think I learned in school that was important in all of my career. And I would say the other skill that I had um that I don't think I learned at all uh, from Penn State, and I could not tell you where I got it from, but I uh, I knew and I still know how to make money. Um, <laughs> I, I could just look at a business situation and and see where the advantages were, you know, mm-hmm. find the angles and, and how to play them. Um, I can't tell you why, um, but I know it's there uh, still,
0: right? That's awesome. I do want to echo off of something you said earlier because um, last week I met with a couple of student alumni alumni that graduated two years ago. And one of them said, like most of the skills that we learn or the things, the homework problems that we do in class are so obscure that we're not learning to solve problems that a professor gives us, but we're learning to solve these ridiculous problems in the timely fashion to learn how to apply that into their real world relationships. So yeah. Yeah. a lot of people say that and I want our audience to take that with them. Um, so going off of that, our next question is.
2: All right. So with regard to this question of like, how does your career turn out? Um, John Lennon said it best, right? Life is what happens while you were making other plans. You know, the, the chances that your career is going to turn out exactly like you think it's probably nil um but that's a good thing because you may not want you, you may not once you really understand what's involved in getting what you thought you wanted maybe you don't really want it mm-hmm. okay um and i think
1: you know it's going to it's be even quote, more true or, the too. sometimes you get what you need you don't know yeah. what you want <laughs> okay so right we're quoting this hits me yep <laughs> but uh
2: you know, I think it's even more true for folks who are getting out of school now. The pace of everything has accelerated so much. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's very hard to anticipate what 10 years from now is going to look like, let alone 30 or 40. And I think the, the amount of change is going to be phenomenal. Yeah. It's accelerating. So, you know, you, I don't think you can really have a plan for that far out. Right. Yeah. Um,
0: I think when you do have a plan that far you um, just end up disappointing yourselves a lot more than anything because I know that definitely hit me um, as a senior and like I see all of my friends get quote unquote their dream jobs like right away and like I know at the beginning of the semester like before school started I got a returning offer from one of the places that I interned at but it wasn't like I was dreaming to go back like I did enjoy the company I liked working there which is I'm actually going back um, with them i um, starting over the summer but it wasn't something that I initially thought that I was planning to go at that route mm-hmm. and I was so devastated I literally like banged myself up and be like what did I do wrong to not get um into my quote one of my dream jobs that I always imagined myself being into but like finally come down taking a step back I'm like you know what this is probably what I need in order to start <laughs> off my career because you know like I'm, I'm thinking of this as if my career has ended when like for my aspect, I am just starting my career. So it yeah. definitely hit me real hard of um, the quotes that you guys just shared.
1: And I just wanna, mm-hmm. I wanna just add something to that. <clears throat> you talked about trying to find your dream job. Mm-hmm. To some extent you have control over that too. Yeah, A job mm-hmm. that maybe quote, isn't your dream job and turn it into your dream job. Right. right. There are many times that I had like, like when I, to give you an example, when I went into management, which I didn't initially want to do. I structured my management job such that I still had my hand in the technology. So I was still doing what I wanted to do initially, you know, but also doing this other part of the the activity too. So you do have a little, what you can, you have some say in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So,
2: so in my career, I was either the first person in the job or the last or both uh, in, over 80% of the jobs I ever had. Okay. Now that's not normal at ExxonMobil. Right. Uh, and I didn't realize it till I was fairly well along in my career. But apparently other people recognized that I, you know, I felt comfortable being first and um, creating the job as, as Ken said. And other people must have seen it because I got that chance over and over and over. I mean, the last I think the last six or seven jobs in a row, I was first in the job. Yeah.
0: Awesome, okay. So given that you were holding positions as like your first or last position, um, going off what you just said, what are some of the challenges that you have faced or do you have any failure stories that you would like to share with the audience? John?
2: Um, well, so one thing leaps to my mind, so I'll, I'll mention it. So, um, and it's, uh, relevant to current events. Um, so uh, this big cold spell that just hit the Gulf Coast, um, everybody was saying it's the worst since 1989. In 1989, I was working at the Baton Rouge refinery. I was a manager of more than a third of the refinery. Um, we had a bitter freeze. Uh, we had three nights in a row of five degrees F, And, you know, it's just not built for that. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a we had an explosion and a fire. Uh, two people died. Um, and that was the worst experience of my professional career. I still think about it um, fairly often. Um, and you know, you can tell yourself, and I, and I do, that it wasn't my fault. There wasn't something that I did wrong but I was responsible it happened on my watch and I you know that um you know that weighs heavy still Mm -hmm. um so yeah I would say that was my biggest failure
0: how about any success stories to counter off that story
2: oh uh well I I already told you one I've had lots of great people work for me um and Um, you know, I must, I must have been doing something right or else, uh, you know, I was incredibly lucky to get all those good people. I think everybody was capable of that. Um, so maybe I just didn't get in their way. Um, I, you know, from, there's a limit to what I can talk about, but the last few, you know, last, uh, five or 10 years of my career, I said, I worked on some big projects and, Um, you know we worked on I worked on large studies Uh, you know I I'd work on something for a year I mean usually had several going but you work on something for a year and it might be worth you know five or ten billion dollars to the corporation so um, that
1: was satisfying Mm
0: -hmm. that's awesome how about you Ken do you have any success and failure stories that you'd like to share with the audience
1: today I'd like to share my success stories, but I, you're asking for failures. Too. <laughs> I don't have. Oh, come on! Talk, talk about some successes. Since you since I talk don't. about you yours. can
0: you can make it a sandwich. Do a success, a failure,
1: and then another success. <laughs> well, no. Let me start with with some failures. I, since I wasn't really ever working in a plant like John was, you know, on a day to day basis, mm-hmm. I don't have. I mean, John, the failure John just mentioned, was probably the ultimate. I mean, it, even though he's not responsible in a way you still feel I am responsible it wasn't my fault there's there's a difference you still feel it I mean it's yeah uh my failures are rather small compared to what John mentioned I mean my experience in the plants was more doing full-scale refinery size test runs Mm -hmm. and there were many times in those test runs that we came within a and uh Small margin of having a major disaster. Like, uh, you know, you're doing a test run and a flange blows, and I'm looking at this reactor at night that's full of hydrogen gas and it's on fire and it looks like a rocket about to launch. And so way that's a failure, that could have blown, it could have killed people. But thank God for the refinery people who, you know, while the rest of us were running away from the problem, these mm-hmm. guys were running to put the fire out and kept it under control. So I would say that a lot of my failures are near misses. They could have been catastrophic. Okay. There was another time that we were doing a test run in our English refinery. Again, another one of these reactors. And we didn't realize that we, the way we were running this thing, it developed a hot spot, a significant hot spot. That hot spot exceeded the metallurgical limit of that reactor. And I was, we were doing round-the-clock shifts. And I was on, I guess I was, had the night shift off and I was coming in in the morning and I see all my guys who were on the shift and the operators, they're all standing looking at the, the temperature recorder. And I said, well, what's going on guys? And they said, well, we, we have a bad thermocouple here. Ooh, we, have, ooh, ooh. we have this one <laughs> thermocouple that's reading like 900 degrees Fahrenheit and, it's, and they said, well, we all knew that the metallurgical limit of the reactor was like 850. Mm-hmm. So I remember sending up one of my guys says, somebody get a, a thermocouple, jam it through the insulation and tell me what the real reading is. And that guy came back and he was stone white and he said, it's 900 degrees. And we immediately hit, most of these reactors have like a, an abort button that just mm-hmm. blows them down and, sh- you know, and immediately hit the abort button and shut it down. But if that reactor would have blown Again, somebody might have gotten killed. Uh, so those are I, I, those are great learning experiences, but they're all from a technical perspective. But they're mm-hmm. also failures in a way. Right. But they're near misses because the fact that we caught that, there was no big issue. Nobody got hurt. Nobody got injured. And so, but if it would have blown up, that could have been the end of my career. I mean, it would have it would have had a devastating effect. So, mm-hmm. okay. So uh, you're not talking about successes though. Oh, now the successes. Every time I point to a when somebody asks me about the success, the one project I go to is in, this is before the merger, but it was in like the last couple of years before the merger. We, we built, we developed a new technology for lubricant manufacturing. It's in our Singapore plant. Uh, we developed basically a whole new technology with a new catalyst in a laboratory, built the plant, in two, month, two years, working closely with the refinery.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And this isn't just me, this is my team. I had some, like John said, I had some unique experts that they were just, they were like the A team, the A plus team. I mean, they were so great. We built that plant in uh, in two years or so, which is kind of unprecedented. And we're sitting back watching it when I hit the start button and it worked. I mean, it was like, when the feeling that when the stuff starts flowing through the plant and it's working the way you expected it you know everybody thinks you should be confident no it's going to work well yeah there's always something that could go wrong right and uh, this this thing just worked and it was it was beautiful and it was it was like probably the technological success of my of my career so that
2: was so so how many new press process technologies did you develop
1: oh boy you know what i've never and never counted them. You mean easily five or 10.
2: Yeah, so just to put that in context, it's extraordinarily difficult to develop a new process technology. ExxonMobil is probably better at it than a lot of companies. Yeah. And Ken's probably responsible for more than half of
1: what's been done in the last 20 or 30 years at the company. I just want to Successes, say successes. I, I didn't develop all of them. I was yeah. maybe the manager of the team i mean yeah I did, okay but it i had great people
2: working you, for you you swung a very big bat and
0: yeah. <laughs> they need a uh, they need to create a statue of you and put it right there in front yeah.
1: of headquarters, <laughs> next, next to joe Paterno, when they put the statue yeah. <laughs> in the lobby of fensky well
2: fensky's gone but that's C E V. yeah Anyhow.
0: Yeah, those are some great stories um definitely some of your failure stories have uh, triggered my memory back to our safety course um because there are a lot of different um, similar scenarios that happen all over the world um so de- thank you for sharing those and mm-hmm. your, your success stories are also um, what we all look forward to one day um as we all um chemi students um graduate and look for mm-hmm. an so yeah. looking back at your experiences would you do anything different to your career choices that you have made John,
2: I wish I could erase that fire and explosion, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because two people would still be alive. Um, But otherwise, no. Um, I mean, you know, maybe I could, maybe I could try to think of some things that might have turned out better. But you know, I, I like my life. You know my my kids are happy and very successful um they have partners that you know they make each other happy and you know we love them and uh that's maybe the most important thing to me and we have i have a lot of friends that i've developed over the years that i work with like ken and um that's important to me and you know like I might not be CEO, but we've got a very comfortable retirement from a financial point of view. So, you know, life is good. And, you know, you you make a change and you may not, it may not go the way you think it would.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, I, I'm pretty happy with the way things have turned out. So, no, I would not, I would not change things.
0: How did you decide that you want to retire in Houston?
2: Well, I don't. I want to move to Florida. <laughs> We've, we'd already be there. Uh, there's there's about half a dozen couples that we are pretty good friends with that we spent a lot of time together when we all lived in Virginia. And they're all in, within, I don't know, three to five miles of each other in Sarasota, Florida. And we want to be there. And we'd be there by now if it wasn't for COVID. So sometime in the next you know six months or so, we'll probably be moving.
0: Um, and the reason
2: yeah and the reason we're going there is because that's where our friends are Mm -hmm. our closest friends
0: how about you Ken looking back at your career would you have um done anything different
1: from a career choice perspective
0: any perspective you want to bring
1: in choice perspective I wouldn't uh, looking back kind of like John I'm happy where I'm at I wouldn't Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have changed anything I had a challenging career you know doing a lot of good fundamental technology, you know, what I wanted to do, technology, and feel like I personally and with my teams added value to the company, made money for the company. So from a career choice, I wouldn't change anything. From my own personal behavioral thing, how I performed in these things, I I would make some changes. I think uh, early on in my career, I probably didn't have, I was probably not confident in my capabilities. So I was kind of I tended to be a little hesitant and cautious in what I was doing and probably didn't go and do uh, enough things that I probably could have done. Mm-hmm. That only happened like later in the middle part of my career and later. And uh, maybe I should have started that being a little bolder and and have a little more confidence a lot early on. Uh, yeah, I only knew you like that. <laughs> me? You never. Knew I only you. knew you like that. <laughs> uh, bold. <laughs> yeah so that that's one thing and uh i would say that's probably what i would change would have been uh would have been you know my current style i think believe believe more in myself and being able to uh to take take more challenges and move forward like that uh that's what comes to mind right now but i wouldn't change you know I, picking chemical engineering was the right choice going to grad mm-hmm. school turned out to be mm-hmm. the right choice Going to work at Mobile was was the right choice. You know, it's like one of these things, like Star Trek time travel. If I would go back and change one thing, I may not mm-hmm. be where I am right now. Mm-hmm. Right, happy, happy, retired. You know, healthy. You know, kind of living a good life right now. Yeah,
0: that is so good to hear from both of you. So now that we're talking about um, our choices in the past affecting our future, how did you guys know when retirement
1: was right for you, Ken? Well, you guys keep asking these questions that are like so open-ended and so personal. I mean, there's no right way to know when you're ready. I mean, you just, its I hate to say it, but you kind of know. In my, case, yes. in my case, I had a unique situation that occurred in that I retired right, if you remember in 2008 and 2009, there was right. a, the market dropped mm-hmm. and interest rates went, went down significantly. And working for ExxonMobil, you had the option of taking an annuity if you retired or a lump sum. And if you did the lump sum, they took the annuity and calculated a net present value based on the interest rate. So that drop in that interest rate meant that if if I would have uh, stayed working and the interest rate went back up to where it was historically, I would be working for like two or three years for no money retiring. Okay. You know, if I take the lump sum and then or mm-hmm. retired at that time or kept working and then retired three years down the road. So a lot of us made a decision to retire then. And I was at, the, you have to also be at the right age. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I was 60 at that time, which is, a which is, a, you know, when you're in that 60 to 65 range, that's, you know, that's kind of like the right time to retire. I mean, some people work longer, some people retire earlier. It's a personal decision, but Financially, it was the right time. Financially, I was I was, uh, capable of retiring. I mean, you had enough money saved up to do that. And the other thing was, and you know, I talked to some of my other friends who were retiring at about the same time. We felt we were at the top of our game. So we kind of used the analogy. We were like uh, sports icons who were leaving, retiring, when we were at the top of our game, not when we were over the hill. Mm-hmm. And we had plenty of people coming up behind us who would just fill fill in for us and take over. And so we wouldn't, you know, so so when do you know it's the right time? The other thing, the most important thing about retirement is you have to be mentally ready. And, And everybody has to decide that for themselves. Some people, it may be you work till 70. I know people that retired and took other career changes, but they retired at 50. Because they wanted to go in a different career path. So, you know, it's hard to say, how do you know? I just I just knew it was right for me. <laughs> okay. Sorry about that. I can't be more specific than that.
0: No, no, it's um, all good. Because I feel like that's what everyone says, or even like, how do I know I wanted to get into chemical engineering? You know, um, people are just like, oh, I like chemistry, or like, I just know this is the
2: one I wanted to do. So,
1: well, those I, can are, you, um, I can tell you how yeah. I made that decision back in the old days. We're sitting in rec hall, you know, where they play volleyball and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And they give you a card and they said, okay, pick your major. And I'm looking at all these different engineering things because I hadn't decided where I wanted to go. And I knew I hated electricity. And I <laughs> and I well I'm good at chemistry. Let's and I checked the chemical engineering box. No more thought than that went into my decision. And look, 50 years later or so, had a good enjoyed it. You know, mm-hmm. followed my heart. I loved chemistry and chemical engineering was the way to go.
0: Yes, that is what all of my peers say, too, (laughs) because I know like once we decide we're I know, at least for me, I never really look back um, into like, did I make the right choice or not, but kind of stuck through. And here I am today. So you, John, well, how did you know that retirement was right for you?
2: Well, a lot of my friends told me, uh, you'll know when it's time. And sure enough, one morning I woke up. I mean, this is literally what happened. Um, I woke up and I said to myself you know, if I was retired, I could just do this, you know, I could still work as a consultant and just do the stuff that I like. Well, okay. I'll retire. And then, and then I didn't consult. I, I once I got retired, I, it was like, yeah, I don't really need to do that. Yeah. I still may. If somebody, you know, that I know asks me to help them, I would do it, but I don't, I'm not really motivated to go out and hustle for clients. You know, Mm -hmm. and I, I, I've talked with Ken about this and I know he was kind of the same way. Um, you know, I, I I don't really want to have a business consulting, I'll, I'll do it sort of for fun, sort of for money, but you know, I, I'm not that interested in trying to find clients. Um, so anyway, but I, I just knew I I woke up one day and said, today's the day. Yeah.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. I look forward to that day.
2: (laughs) Well, it's just a phase in life. Um, and you know, Ken kind of mentioned this in passing, but you know, that the company that we worked for, I mean, you could you had the equivalent of a 401k before that was even a thing. Mm-hmm. So the company was matching your contributions and there was a lot of savings there if you were contributing. Um, and so financially it was quite possible to retire very comfortably. Okay. Um, And I want to make a point about that. I I made some notes for myself for this discussion. That may be the best piece of advice that I can give to young people starting out. Um, A long time ago, somebody told me that they were saving 25% of their income. And I thought, wow, that's a lot. I was probably doing more like 10 or
0: 12. Wow. I'm thinking that right now because I have a spreadsheet and I'm like, okay, 10%. (laughs)
2: Yeah. Well, okay. And that's, that's kind of what I was doing. Right. Um, But this person was in their late thirties, early forties. And they said, you know, I just passed the point where the income on what I have in the thrift fund is exceeding my
1: contribution and the company's contribution, which was at the time like 13% that
2: yours plus the company's was 13%. So he is, he was making more than 13% of his, of his, Income per year in his retirement savings, on top of which there was a pension building. Okay, I thought, well, that's pretty cool. And then he said, "Yeah, and I figure in another seven years, the income will be greater than my salary." Like, whoa! And I did the math, and he, it was plausible, right? Um, So that inspired me, and not right away, but within relatively short time, I started saving twenty-five percent, and. You know, I've got my kids doing it from the day they started working. Um, and so I said what I said to them, I think the logic applies to students today. Um, if you start off doing that, you won't miss it because you never were making that much money anyway. Right.
0: Yeah.
2: And if you save 25 percent of your salary for the first two years, you have six months of salary in the bank after two years. Mm hmm. And that's walkaway money. There's another term for it, but um, you don't. You can leave a job in a heartbeat if you're not happy. If you have six months of savings, because you're not. You're not going to need six months to find a job, but you don't have to stick around waiting to find a job. Mm-hmm. And having that in your head is freedom. So you can you can take more risk. You can be bold, like Ken talked about and life and your career will go better because you're willing to take more risk. So I think it's really important to try saving that much money. Like I said, you won't miss it. You'll, you'll live within your means and all this money is gonna be piling up so you can retire early. I think there's gonna be relatively few people in the future who work for a company that will provide the kind of benefits that Ken and I are enjoying. You're going to have to save yourself, you know, and they might help you, but you're going to have to manage your own retirement saving for your own retirement. But I, again, I want to emphasize that I think the main reason to save like that is for the freedom that it gives you and the impact that freedom has on the way you think and the way you live.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, it's not about what you're doing when you're 65. It's what about you? Well, it's about what you're doing when you're 25 and 35 and 45 and 55. Having that freedom at least in your head, makes a big difference. Even if you still work for the same company for 40 years, like Ken and I did, you know, knowing that you could leave whenever you want is important. It makes you more aggressive in taking risk. Um, uh, The other thing I, the other piece of advice I would give is you should always know what you're worth somewhere else. You know, whatever company you're working for, you should talk to headhunters. I mean, they're happy. They want to talk to you. They want to know what you're doing because they might find a job for you, right? Or you might be a fit for somebody that's paying them to find you, right? So they like to have people that they're in touch with. So you should talk to them uh, and find out like what you could do elsewhere, right? And what what it would pay. Um, Because if you know that, you're going to make a conscious choice and then you'll be happy. You'll, you know, most likely you'll stay where you are, but you may choose to leave. Either way, you'll be happy, okay? And you'll do your best work when you're happy. So you'll have more success. So knowing what you're worth is important. It, it it leads to, you know, you'll do better at your job that you're in, or you'll decide to leave because you can do better elsewhere. Either way, you win, okay? Uh, so this is, I mean, these two things, save 25% and know what you're worth. You know, I think these will bring more happiness and success in your life,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: not just retirement.
0: Those are some awesome advice um, for sure. But I know as you were explaining why for the 25% and like about making that decision early, it kind of coincides with um, what one of my beliefs of setting yourself up so that in the future you can make your own choices. I feel like um, a lot of times sometimes we limit ourselves to one or maybe two items but and we don't really think too far ahead but I am a huge planner and so I like to plan multiple different routes so that I can uh, at the end of the day when time comes have choices that I can choose between rather than being stuck with one choice yep. so yeah but so those are two great advice I hope our listeners um, take them to heart and um,
1: if I or put them
0: on the wall and look at it every
1: single day. If I could add to what John said, uh, I remember my first day when I showed up to work at Mobile Research,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they give you all the papers you have to sign and so forth, and there was this one paper that had my anticipated retirement date on it, so this is way back in 1974, and I'm I'm 20-something, I'm young. I was
0: going to say, you're probably like, I just started, I'm not looking to retire yet. Yeah.
1: But you signed this piece of paper and had my retirement date on it, and that retirement date was 2014. And I'm sitting there thinking, good God, that's beyond, remember the movie 1984, the 2001, the Space Odyssey, and all of that? Yeah, yeah. It's never going to come. Yeah.
2: and We're I'll all going to be in the Jetsons flying
1: cars. We'll be flying around. <laughs> and, you know, maybe living in my, my villa on the moon or something like that. We... That 40 years went by like that. And now when you look at 2014, it's in the rearview mirror by how many years? Now, like seven years, okay? Mm -hmm. So you may have to wait to to save because you have a lot of things happening early in your life, but it's never too soon to start saving because that time is going to go by very quickly. Mm -hmm. And You want to be able to have the freedom to retire as early as possible because you only have so many years left, right? <laughs> so, you know, you can either work those years away or you could retire and have the good life like John and I are talking about. So, but the savings is the key thing. Mm-hmm. Anyways, so Maybe
0: as- we need to bring you guys back on a, a personal finance topic.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I just hire the right people who know how to do that finance stuff. <laughs> Anyhow. All right, yeah. um,
0: so last question before we kind of shift gears of the list of what like, topics, but what was it like for you guys to go going- Experiencing a company merger, Ken.
1: It's probably the hardest three years of my life, of all my career. I mean, thirty-five years or so. I don't know what it was like for John, but uh, basically, we took two companies that had different, different cultures in a way. Very, very different cultures. Different cultures. I'm, I'm being (laughs) politer, but we had same common goals. I mean, we're the same kind of companies. And uh, actually, in retrospect, we probably have more in common than we thought we did at the time, but trying to get. I just remember, you know, I was put immediately into a manager's position in the new company and had to deal with the different perspectives of people that grew up in different companies and. Uh, it, it was very, very difficult and for I forget how long it was drawn, maybe six months. After the merger, they had a bunch of us were sequestered away doing organizational studies and that kind of oh, stuff. Geez. So I was away from my family. I was like, uh, you know, I'd, I'd come home for the weekends and travel up to where, where we were working from up in the old Exxon site in Forum Park for a whole week, being away, you know, away from family and everything. It was tough. And we, in addition to dealing with a lot of your friends that, you know, people had a choice. They could stay with a company or leave. Mm -hmm. A lot of these people, like a lot of the people that I mentioned who who were on my team doing that success in Singapore, a good number of those people decided that they didn't want to go into the merger, so they left. And uh, what we still do is 20 years, it's been like 20, 21 years after the merger, we still get together when it's not COVID, but we get together twice a year in Philadelphia and have a reunion because we weren't only just coworkers, we were friends and so that's that awesome but working through all that organizational stuff john and, and re-establishing the organization and getting to learn people i mean uh and it made some really good friends from i was from the mobile side and made a lot of good friends from the exxon side and uh like john 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 mm-hmm. was my enemy back when we were recruiting at penn state We frenemies yeah uh, so uh getting used to the different cultures. And I was resistant, you know, and uh, Exxon tended to have more controls in place. Mm-hmm. all did, And uh, and that was tough to get used to. But eventually we worked through that. And mm-hmm. we kind of moved towards a little bit towards the middle, you know, in a way. And yeah, yeah. but those, I'd have to say, if I had to point to anything over my whole career from start to finish, the hardest years were Like two thousand to two thousand and three. Okay, John.
2: When you say hardest,
1: like like working the hardest, stressful, maybe just stress. Yeah, stressful. Yeah. Okay. So um, hours. Yeah, the hours were like infinite. Yeah, stress was (laughs) infinite, and uh, so um, so one of the jobs where I was first,
2: um, we set up this team, the Exxon International Company and the Exxon Chemical Company. Um, We had a team that uh, was to develop uh, long-term strategic plans for all the large integrated sites where refineries and chemicals were uh, integrated. And um, I was the first person on the team. I wasn't the manager, but I set up the office. And then as we got rolling, we, we each got uh, a couple of sites to work on, and I drew the straw to um, do work on a site in China that we were not involved in, but we were competing uh, to be involved in. Um, and so, uh, for six months, I was working a hundred hours a week, um, and. I was, uh, I was flying, I was spending every other week in China, and at the end of the week that I was at home, I had reviews, I had a review with the senior vice president of basic chemicals and the senior vice president of the downstream from the, that's like refining and marketing and so on, um, from the international company, you know, like an hour or two with the two of them. To talk about what happened, you know, in the in the prior in the prior week in China, and what progress had we made, and um, I had my my contribution was to develop what the the, you know the configuration should be for this, because they were looking, the Chinese were looking for a partner because they wanted to significantly expand the site and add a lot of chemicals. Um, They had been they were nearly done a deal with Amoco. And then um, we got brought in, I guess, as a, to, to be a competing bid. and um, we won. Uh, but there was the, the stress was uh, very high because uh, the stakes were high and it was, it was pretty much riding on my back. Um, there was a team that was, um, you know, doing a lot of the interface with the folks in China. They were there a lot. I was only there half the time. Um, and they were closer to the people there but the sort of the techno-economic work um, was all on me um, and I had to develop methods because um, we had never done that kind of uh, optimization modeling of a plants you know from an economic perspective mm-hmm. um, it was it was a lot of work um, and you know it all went well. It was a big success. I got rewarded, um, and I got to go to China, and that was that was incredible. There was a there was a company of the Red Army stationed in the refinery because it was, you know, a national asset. And I used to you know I run every day. I have for um, almost fifty five years now, um, and I'd go out and run through the refinery, and. The Red Army would be out there doing their calisthenics and I'd smile and wave and they would wave back. You know, <laughs> I, I could tell you a lot of stories about, you know, doing that. Um, it was, that was a rip, that was a lot of fun. Um, but it was, it was an enormous amount of pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my boss was worried for my health, but, you know, um, I got through it.
0: Yeah. You know, um, you telling the story of you running around um, in like the floor, reminds me of one of my one of my first like summer internships. So one of my um co-workers mentor, um, he would like give them breaks and be like, all right, give me give me like five or ten push-ups on the floor right now. And then they would do yeah. like pipe hangs and they would do like exercise throughout the manufacturing plant. So cool. <laughs> that was always fun. <laughs>
1: Holy, only five or 10 push-ups. Wow. Okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Okay. So now we're gonna um, kind of switch gears a little bit. Um, and ask you guys questions more about like, what should students look forward to um, going out? But first off, how has the Penn State campus changed since you guys have been students?
1: Jeez. <laughs> well, you have computers. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had, no, we had computers.
2: Yeah. You just, a,
1: you just needed a truck to carry the computers around, but they were portable. I mean, uh, uh, You had to submit card decks. Well, here's the thing. I'll, I'll tell you this. When I started as a freshman at Penn State, we used slide rules. Oh, okay. okay. And by the time I graduated from Penn State in 1970, the first handheld calculators had been developed. They but they were like a thousand dollars a piece
2: mm-hmm.
1: back in 1970. So what's that now? Ten thousand dollars or something? I mean, only the rich kids could have them. The rest of us were still using slide rules.
2: And. and- they, they didn't, those calculators
1: didn't do much more than a slide rule could do. Yeah. They just could do. And uh, the computers we had to use was was IBM 370, you know, the big main <laughs> mainframes. Big fat ones. Mainframes, yeah. And so I've gone from that using a slide rule to I have my cell phone on me right now, which has more computing power than they used to land on the moon with Apollo 11. I mean, it's, it's yeah. it, I've seen the whole transition. Okay. The Mm -hmm. only computing device that I didn't use was an abacus. That was, Mm -hmm. I would say that from a standpoint of the campus, I was the first class that was in East halls. Wow. And East halls was the boondocks. The the only further out than East halls was Beaver stadium. Beaver Mm -hmm. stadium was there, but there was nothing between East halls and and Beaver stadium, except like intramural fields, just fields, you know, And sometimes there'd be cows on them, sometimes there'd be sheep on them. And that's it, and now now look at the campus where, you know, East Halls is sort of, you know, right Becoming
0: more modern with all the glass and uh, all the reconstruction.
1: Well, yeah, there's modern modern architecture, you know, things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, one of the first things I did when I was uh, first on the engineering alumni board for one of our first meetings, I hadn't been up on campus for quite a while. I, I took a walk around the perimeter just to see where how it changed, and I was just amazed at all the new construction. Things like the uh, the Brazil nuclear reactor that used to be that was put way out in the fields for safety reasons. Mm-hmm. Now it's like enmeshed in all these houses and buildings, and so
2: forth. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> now that that kind of amazed me, like how much the how much the campus has grown uh, to and beyond mm-hmm. Beaver Stadium, and how much the campus has grown. West, we're on the golf course and all that. So mm-hmm. a lot of construction and a lot of building.
0: you, John, do you have any more comments to add on that?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, physically, Ken's described it. Um, I think the computing power is probably the biggest change, as we've discussed in, in terms of academics. Um, I think the students are um, a lot more involved in lots of things than I was or my peers. I mean, I was, um, I was involved in AICHE and, and Tau Beta Pi, and,
1: yeah.
2: you know, but we didn't do very much compared to what y'all are doing. Yeah. So, um, and you know, like nobody was doing, I don't know, going to Africa to, you know, implement a, you know, foot powered water pump that they designed or something. You know, like uh, students today are just doing a great, much greater variety of things than ever we did. I mean that that's been a big change. I mean, I've watched it develop over the years, um, and it's I think it's wonderful. I wish I wish that it had been like that when I was a student. I would have had a more rounded education. Yeah, um, it seems much better now. To be, to me, looking at it, it, seems like a much better time to be a student at Penn State than it was when I was there. Not that I, I loved
1: it, right? But yeah, you know, we it's better now. We didn't know what we didn't know back then. Okay, now we see. Well, nobody, <laughs> yeah. nobody was doing that. But we, but we, uh, you know, now we see what you students are doing, and just mm-hmm. a little bit envious in a way. But also, yeah. I sometimes wonder if I could compete with you guys. I mean, you're doing so much more than what we did. there's yeah. any tools and software programs, you know, and, and, you know, just, I sit back sometimes and just amazed at the skills that you have, which are skills that like, I know I didn't get until I was maybe in industry for five or so years. So yeah. you're, getting, you're getting a big jump start. and that's, mm-hmm. the students are different Yeah, you know, and you're, you, you get involved beyond just chemical engineering. When I was in school, we didn't have things like Thawne. I mean, uh, when we weren't doing our work, we were probably just going down to the bars and drinking you know that was it but international travel i mean my my summer job was i went to cleveland i mean that was, so <laughs> <laughs> you, guys to, you guys are going to you know all different kinds of exotic places and getting different experiences so it's it's a much richer environment mm-hmm. okay and it's good it, it, it's evolved mm-hmm. not that it wasn't rich for us but it was a different kind of richness when we were there
0: that's nice to hear, but don't don't let um the unpredictable future kind of make you guys like dead down your experiences.
1: Um, your experiences, I'm sure, are yeah. just as great. Now, another another change that just came to mind that's different. I think in a somewhat a negative way. Back when I went to school, I had 40 people in my class.
2: Okay.
1: So I had a much more intimate relationship with the professors, the chemical, mm-hmm. and they they yeah. they were great mentors and everything. I I see that maybe students today don't have that, that intimacy with their professors the way I did. And so that would be one negative that I would
2: say right now that I see.
0: All right, so going off of the academic setting, now that we've identified that students are getting um, the technical knowledge, the academics under the belt um, from the university experiences, what can you guys share with um, current students or soon to be graduates of uh, what to look forward to into what should they look forward in a company for their full-time job? John?
2: Um, okay, so it, it's, um, it's hard working. You know, you think you work hard in school, you know, you're pulling all-nighters or whatever, but um, you have a lot of control over um, what you're doing and when and where. And you give up a lot of that um, when you go to work for a company. Now, you know, these days, right this minute, a lot of people working for companies are working remotely. But they're still, you know, I have a lot of friends who are still working. I mean, they tell me, if anything, we're working more um, because we're not commuting. You know, and that time turns into more work. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's hard. I mean, it's hard to, I mean, I I remember very clearly that struck me, you know, like six months in, I mean, every, you know, five days a week, you gotta, you know, you gotta push, push, push. And then you, you know, you take work home and you, you know, I mean, okay, the weekends are your own, but I mean, it was, it was an adjustment. Um, and you know, I, I, didn't mind hard work. I mean, geez, I was a, I was a janitor in a Catholic nursing home, you know, I mean, anything looked good after that, you know. So, um, but but still, well, I think for, you know what our students um, to recognize that it, you may think it's going to you be are easier. going to be evaluated. A lot of people are it's surprised by that. Um, you know, the company's got to figure out who's doing good. They're going to pay the people that are doing good more. Mm-hmm. Um, I, Ken, you can check me on this. Um, the first the, for the first year, the way the Exxon Exxon system, I'm not sure about Mobile, but. Um, The way Exxon worked was the first two years' raises were pretty automatic. You weren't really rated against the other people. You know, they needed to get to know you better before they would evaluate, rank you, compare you to the others. But after two years, you know, they started to like, and the first two years, everybody shared information about, oh, I got this is the raise I got. Right. And the third year, that stopped because people who got more didn't want to say so. That would be embarrassing. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to embarrass themselves or others. And people that got less, once they realized that they were getting less, they felt bad, right? So like, it was kind of a a shock. And I know that that still happens today, that people share information about how much they are getting paid, like for the first year or two. And then they realize, you know, I mean, either, either you're on the unhappy side or the uncomfortable side, you know, happy, but uncomfortable. And like, it just stops. So I I think people are surprised. You know, they they think it's more egalitarian like it is when you're a student, you know, you're you're sharing, you're helping each other, you know but once you realize that you're actually being compared to everybody that you work with and that your pay is at stake, um, I don't, you know at least at ExxonMobil, one of the things you got evaluated on was how well you worked in a team. So it's not like you're all at each other's throats or anything. But still you're you are competing.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And it, you know, and if you're not ready for that, that can throw you. Right. It's a it's sort of a mind mindset change. Um, and you know, sure, you can work, you could work for a small company where you really are you know, like a startup and you're all in this together. My daughter worked for a startup. I mean, unlike most startups, they actually made money and, you know, um, you know, they're still in business. Um, she doesn't work for them anymore, but, you know, she got a chunk of change out of it. Um, and a lot of professional experience, but, and, you know, like we used to go visit there a lot, you know, you walk in and uh, like they had their own chef and the, there's dogs walking around and, um, you know, everybody's friendly, right? But they were still competing. You know, people got, you know, some people moved up, some people didn't, you know. Um, I don't know, I think that catches a lot of people by surprise. I mean, it sounds silly to say that, of course you would know it, but the reality of it still seems to catch a lot of people by surprise.
0: Awesome, I'm sure, yeah. I, I'm sure it's gonna hit me too, because here I thought we're uh, supposed to stop comparing ourselves to others. And well, no, how about you? Do you have anything to add to that?
1: Well, to follow up on what John's saying, you're being compared to other students today. That's your grade mm-hmm. point average and your grade point. Yeah. Right? And so, when you move into industry, you're not going to nobody's going to give you an A, B, C, or D, but they're going to rate you. And so, you're you're still going to be in a way for the rest of your career, you're going to be graded. And that's how that's how they separate, you know, the high performers from from other performers. And uh, and sometimes you may have to move to another company. You know, if you don't jive with the culture in one company, you could go to another company. And I've seen people who were like mediocre at Mobile go to other companies and become vice presidents. I mean, it's you know just they, they mesh with that culture versus you know what what they had in the other company. So, uh, but the one piece of advice to give to students today is is uh, when you take that first job, have have realistic expectations. You have to start. You're the bottom. You're not going to come in and they're not going to make you a CEO in two months. You're going to have to walk <laughs> your way up the ladder. And means- the clouds bark and the sun shines down. <laughs> you're going to have to uh, you know, earn your dues. You have to build your credibility with, with the mm-hmm. people that you're working with in that company. You got somebody who maybe been working in that company for 20 years. Why do they, why should they trust you? You have to build that trust with them. And it takes time. So just be patient, focus on your day job, do the best you can. Don't focus on the next promotion or the next, you know, job that you want to get. If you do that day job correctly and, and to the best of your ability, all those other opportunities are going to fall in your lap. You'll, you'll end up with more opportunities than you can choose from. You'll be turning down opportunities. Mm-hmm. So uh, stay focused on on your, your job that you have to do, okay, and be patient and, and the advancements will come. And someday, 40, 40, 50 years from now, you'll be given a podcast on some some computer to some younger person that's not even born yet and, uh, and talking about the successful career you've had. So, but anyway. These
0: are some uh, great points that you guys bring up. And to close out this episode, um, as you guys are sitting in front of books, what is...
2: <laughs>
1: oh, that's This is just a backdrop. I just... Yeah. <laughs> You're not the first one to point that out.
0: Eddie. It's it's very iconic for you guys. I wish our audience could see uh, your backgrounds every time um, they, you guys like on a Zoom call. But what but is
2: those are uh, real. So not, no? Not I know, background. I know,
1: I know
0: they're real. That's,
1: <laughs> that's that what's prompting
0: acne? the question.
1: <laughs> they're, they're that's the tab that's the bar at the tavern. Is that better? Does that better?
0: <laughs> <laughs> the tavern's actually closed right now for renovations. But the question is, um, since you guys have accumulated a lot of books for your during your life's um, time, what is uh, some book recommendations would you recommend for current students or people who just graduated? About anything.
1: Well, one I'm reading right now, trying to read, it's like over a thousand pages is the biography of Winston Churchill, and I'm reading it because I wanted to learn more about his leadership during those crisis times during World War Two. It was very interesting. He he rose up in england to become prime minister got them through world war ii and then he he got kicked out shortly after that you know it's like mm-hmm. it's an interesting thing like why wasn't he more revered or whatever so i just wanted to learn more about the leadership aspects of that but i read a lot of science fiction books and things like that and there's a couple technical books up there too
0: I see john there going
1: on to pick a book <laughs> yeah here what book are you picking um, i can't pick out. I, the, I,
2: there's, there's there's one i the, there's one i, I can't th- find just now but um Okay, so Ken book is an ebook, but uh, so. so Ken mentioned decision analysis. That's something that I did for probably the last twenty years of my career. It's mm-hmm. a way of, of thinking about the probabilities of what you're looking at. So, uh, example would be if you're designing a pump, um, you know the the, uh, the the rate that you want to the pump the pump at is uncertain. It's going to change over time. You know. Vary up and down on a given day, but you know, maybe over the lifetime of a project, you know, of a of a plant, what you want the pump to do might change. The the physical characteristics of the fluid are uncertain and will vary, right? All these things are uncertainties. And you'll design a better pump if you recognize they're uncertain and consider that when you design the pump. So decision analysis helps you with that. It's a structured way to do it. This is the best book. This is the first book I read on it, and this is still the best book for thinking about how to make money out of this decision analysis. And I did that. I, I spent a number of years using decision analysis to make a lot of money for ExxonMobil. So that one's important. I tell everybody to read that one. This is another great one. Um, this book won a lot of awards, and the author won the Nobel Prize. Hold it up, John. We can't You can't see it? Yeah, there it goes. Thinking Fast and Slow. It's I'm actually about reading
0: that one right
2: now. Okay. Yeah. It's about like the kind of the the way the human mind works and kind of the biases that we have that cause us to make mistakes and how to manage yourself so that you don't make those mistakes. Okay. And relative to this one, right? So one of the characteristics that we have is we're pretty good at estimating. and 90% probabilities. Okay. And you can use that in terms of like designing a pump. We're horrible about um, accurately estimating things that are less likely, Mm -hmm. that are, say, 1% or 99%. We're terrible at that. We undervalue those grossly. Mm -hmm. And so there's another good book called The Black Swan. I was looking for that. And I I couldn't put my hand on it right now, but it's in there somewhere. And the author talks about how to take advantage of people's inability to accurately price things that are pretty unlikely to happen. So you can make very very small bets and have outsized rewards. And um, what I'll say is that's probably the best thing I've learned in my life is how relatively easy it is to find ways to spend a little and make a lot. Mm-hmm. You just have to know how to see the world that way and then you can find them. I used to find them over and over on the projects I worked on. And one of the best things anybody ever said, you know, things I'm proud of. This was a guy I, I, I didn't know that well. Um, uh, I didn't know that well but he introduced me to somebody else. And he said, this is John, he's a planner. I don't know how he does it, but everything he works on happens, right? And that's not really true because I killed a lot of stuff early when I knew it couldn't work. But I did have a lot of th- things work, a lot more than I used to when I was early in my planning, maybe one out of five, that was kind of a norm. But you know, for the last, I don't know, seven or so years, I was batting a thousand. I mean everything worked because I could find you know I could find a lot of things where we could make 50 or 100 to 1 payouts.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, like a little a small component of a project, but if you if you spend if you, if you can spend 10 million dollars and make 500 million it makes it a whole lot easier to make your project look good. Right? Mm-hmm. So um, so those are the books that I think are worth reading. They're all around that that basic idea
0: awesome thank you guys for sharing um, hey. i'm going to open up for round table if you guys wanted to add anything else before we end the recording
1: did we answer all your questions or... yeah
2: okay yeah somehow i feel like we didn't we didn't make it sound like as much fun as it really was working <laughs> we had a lot of fun we, we yes. had fun together ken and i
1: yeah but remember it's a job So you're going to have to do, you know, it's not, they don't call it a resort or, you know, a hobby, a job. So there's going to be a lot of stress. And just like John mentioned early on, when Mm. I, when I retired in the first couple days after retirement, and I didn't have that stress. The thought that came to my mind was how did I survive all those years to retirement? Because the stress was just high. Mm -hmm. So if I had to give any advice to a student through their career is really look at how to manage the stress. And I I don't know, I didn't do that well. But uh, you know, that would be if I had to look at one major mistake I did, how do you manage all that stress? And I guess I was just lucky that we survived. (laughs) Okay, survived it to retirement. So Mm -hmm. that's why I ran every day. That was my best stress relief. I ran too. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I blew my knee up, but I ran. I used to run too. So that was some self-care to take care of the mm-hmm.
0: But Got to create the balance and harmony in your life, for sure. Yep. sure. Yep. I would yeah. i like to thank you guys um, for joining us today and thank taking you. the time out of your um, days mm-hmm. and to answer all these questions that students had um, on this topic. But thank you guys again.
2: Okay. I hope Thanks, you guys- Annie.
1: Good luck. We'll talk to you later, Thanks, Annie. Bye-bye.